Hello, listeners. Today, we have a very special guest with us today. His name is John Crone. He is a chief data scientist at an AI-powered recruiting firm called Untapped. He's recently written a book called Deep Learning Illustrated, which almost immediately surged to Amazon's bestsellers list for books about neural networks and data mining. I could keep going, but I don't want to be doing all of the talking, so I'll just say, hello, John. Welcome to Databytes. Hi there. Good morning. It's absolutely wonderful to be on Databytes. So I've got a list of questions for you, John, today. Um, I want to talk all about your experiences at Untapped, about authoring a book and, and other endeavors you have going on at the same time. So it's a rather large scope of topics we're going to cover. I hope you're ready for it. I am ready. I saw your list of questions that you prepared and I love it. I'm so excited to talk about the, uh, the topics that you have outlined for us today. So let's just start off with your work at Untapped because I personally have not heard about AI-powered recruiting firms before. What does that really mean and, and who are your clients? That's a great question. So if you think about tools like LinkedIn or Monster.com, they have some capacity to allow you to uh, find roles that you're looking for and they suggest jobs for you. And some of those do a better job than others. Uh, so in my opinion, from what I've seen in LinkedIn, for example, I get, you get really bizarre matches. And um, right now, for example, we are recruiting for a backend engineer role. Uh, and one of the tools that we're using to recruit is LinkedIn. And we get lots of uh, suggestions to interview baristas because they have experience Ooh. with Java. Oh, yeah, I can see that. Um, so that's an example of how uh, many of these kinds of tools in human resources use keywords to identify potential matches. And so um, that is an approach. And, and some people use uh, machine learning approaches that use a lot of keywords like that or that are trained on data. In our case, um, we use a deep learning approach with hundreds of millions of training data cases that we've accumulated over the years. So um, we've been around for five years and we've had lots of different clients in that time. And so we have you know, hundreds of millions of decision points on a given candidate and a given uh, job description and whether that pair, the natural language of someone's um, resume and the natural language of a job description, whether those are likely to be uh, evaluated in real life by a recruiter or by a hiring manager to say, yes, this is someone I'd like to speak to for this role, or no, this is someone that isn't appropriate for this role. And so by training on that huge data set and by using modern deep learning techniques to get a uh, contextualized, nuanced understanding of the content of the resumes and the job descriptions, it allows us to have um, a much better match than uh, we're experiencing right now via LinkedIn, for example. That's really interesting. So just to clarify, we've got a classification problem um, where you're classifying whether a recruiter will speak to um, a candidate rather than whether the candidate ultimately accepts the job, right? That's not what you're going for. Right. So the idea is that this downstream allows, of course, people to get the job. However, the for, for a couple of reasons, it makes a lot more sense to build a machine learning model for predicting whether somebody is just a good match for the role. Because um, 
one, you have a lot more decision points. So if you limited yourself only to data where somebody was hired, then you'd have a much more, we wouldn't have hundreds of millions of data points. We'd have like hundreds of thousands of data points or something like that. Um, the other reason is that at that point that a hiring manager, they have the job description in mind or they have it in front of them. And then they are looking at a potential resume or a stack of resumes. Some of those they know are good fits when they look at them, others they know are not. And so at that decision point, the person who's making those decisions has the same amount of information that our algorithm has. Whereas for those other downstream decisions, as soon as somebody's had a phone call, um, as soon as somebody has done a code test or something like that, that adds noise to the predictions that we would be trying to making that, that we couldn't possibly have insight into. However, that said, it is possible, and we do work with clients in some cases to integrate in data that they have. So we might be working with a large corporate who has their particular kind of testing that they do for particular kinds of roles. And so we can make a custom model that starts with, okay, we'll start with our kind of off the shelf job to candidate matching model, and then we'll add in inputs and train on your training data um, using transfer learning to accommodate these additional metrics that you might have. Wow, that's that's actually really, really exciting. Um, in terms of where you get your data, do you have a fixed data set for most everybody, and then people can add in their own proprietary data sets on top of that, or, um, or, or what does that look like? Another really great question. So we have kind of a core data set, especially for that job candidate matching, which is the one that people tend to be most interested in um, and kind of variations on that theme is the kind of model that people are most interested in. Although it's not the model that they're only interested in, it's the one that I end up talking about the most because of how much interest there is in it and because it's the one that we have the most data for. Um, so yeah, it's exactly like you think or exactly like you um, just suggested, we have kind of a core set of data that various clients contribute to. And um, some clients are um, more protective of their data. And you know we have a lot of security standards with anyone's data, but some clients say to us, uh, you know, you need to keep our data on a separate server. And so they'll pay more to have us set up a completely separate server instance that you know, we we securely transfer data in directly from their server, um, or in some cases, we actually do all of the work on their servers. Um, so in some cases, the data can't leave at all. Um, so in those latter two circumstances where we're keeping their data segregated um, from the other data that we have, or we're working on their servers, we can take the models that we have built on the larger training data sets, and we can then use transfer learning um, to fine tune the model to their needs, you know, with extra inputs, extra outputs, extra training data, whatever. However, uh, we end up having, you know, we have to charge a little bit more in those circumstances. And we also try to say, okay, uh, you know, you're not going, you, yeah, because they're not contributing to the benefits that they are receiving. Like they are not contributing data to the same kind of common resource that other people are benefiting from. Cool. Now, another question for you. So given that historically with recruiting, people haven't been taking this approach that you are, right? This is a very unique service that you're offering. How do you pitch this to potential clients? Is it really challenging to convince them that AI has something to bring to the table or do they immediately get it? A large number of people that we speak to see that this is the future. So we have three different kinds of categories of clients. 
we have corporate clients who tend to be large tech companies and they actually tend to already have in-house uh, data science teams dedicated to their own human resources problems. And so they are super savvy and they are aware of us and our competitors. Um, and we're delighted that those kinds of very savvy teams um, sometimes pick us. There's uh, one uh, client of ours, uh, they did a search of 200 kinds of companies that do uh, matching like ours, um, you know, human resources AI work, and they selected us after that kind of global search. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of one category of our client, and we're delighted to be able to work with them. They are super savvy, and they know exactly what they want, and they can ask incredibly thoughtful questions about how we're going to be doing all the work. Uh, and it's absolutely a joy to work with, to iterate on models with them. We always learn a ton from working with clients like that. Um, another category of our client is um, uh, other HR tech companies. So maybe a company that builds an applicant tracking system or a, some other kind of relationship database where their primary concern and their bread and butter over the years has become building a beautiful, beautiful screens for, um, for their clients to use or uh, for candidates to have a great experience as they onboard for particular roles. And you know they, might, they don't have in-house the kind of data science expertise to be automating aspects of the matching. And so that's where we come in and we build custom APIs for them that they can call and that add um, automated aspects to their, um, to their platform. And so an example of a client like that is Smashfly who have impact millions and millions of people every year, uh, millions of, of people worldwide use this Smashfly platform. And um, prior to working with us, it didn't have any automated aspects, but now there are two, we're, we're rolling out with them right now, two different kinds of algorithm. One of them is the one that I just described, which is this kind of matching candidates to jobs. So um, for any given candidate that applies into that system, they can be ranked against any given role um, based on a score from zero to 100. Uh, and then we also have a cool thing that they, it was their idea to have us build this for them. And it's this idea of an engagement index. So it's a score from one to 10 representing how much a given applicant is uh, engaged with a company's brand and, and so give a sense of whether this person is likely to be applying to roles with you. And so you can engage your marketing uh, with them in, in different ways, depending on uh, their level of engagement with your brand. Um, so that's the second category. And then the third and final category, which I've left to the end, but is actually the kind of client that we deal with the most and is most related to the question that you asked, is a huge number of our clients are recruitment companies. And some of these recruitment companies see the writing on the wall that things are going to be different in the coming years. That if they don't have some kind of AI matching tool to automate aspects of their workflow or other aspects of the workflow, um, they are going to be left behind by their competitors that do. And so we work with a number of large recruitment firms with thousands or hundreds of uh, recruitment consultants. And we, and typically with many of those clients, they just, they, they might start off when we start an engagement with them, they might have um, not even a database of all their data. They just have on individual consultants, laptops, 
the information that they need. And so it becomes, you know, so those end up being the kinds of longest engagements that we have, the longest projects that we have. So some of those have been going on for many years now where we're helping them get all of their data aggregated so that it's not just on people's local machines, get that into a, a database and then start building on top of that these automated aspects, build them user interfaces so that they can be taking advantage of these algorithms in real time. And uh, yeah, so there's a huge, there's huge variation in um, people's preparedness for these kinds of um, uh, algorithms in, in human resources. Do you think the landscape is really going to shift in the next few years to being really dominated by players like Untapped in the field? Or do you think there's going to be a longer transition period? Um, so I think that companies, so recruitment firms that take advantage of tools like ours. So there, there used to be a time where we were in the business of doing uh, recruiting ourselves. So where, you know, we had a platform, um, a, a website that, in a two-sided platform where uh, we took um, uh, money from clients and then we would use that to advertise to attract potential candidates and then we had this kind of pool of candidates it was growing 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 and so we used to be in that recruitment business and we're and um, you know we're not interested in trying to dominate that per se anymore we're not trying to dominate the recruitment business anymore um, we now license out that business however what we are now is we are a software company. So we build these custom algorithms. We build custom user interfaces on top of those algorithms that make it easy for people to, in a click and point interface, take advantage of these high powered um, algorithms working behind the scenes. And so what I hope or what we see is that more and more um, people who want to be competitive in recruitment are going to have to take advantage of these kinds of automated tools because they will be left behind by, by the recruitment companies that do take advantage of, of tools like ours. Um, yeah, I mean, if you have to manually sift through hundreds of documents or thousands of documents for a given role, or you have to use a keyword search to sift, um, either of those two approaches is is way too clunky. And we've done, uh, um, so actually not even we've done, we've had clients who have done studies on our algorithm versus a sophisticated Boolean uh, keyword search approach. And uh, they found that with our algorithm, they were able to identify 21 times as many of the most relevant candidates for a given opening. And then... Yeah. Um, 12 times of kind of the second tier of like fairly high quality candidate. So, I mean, that's a huge, that's, that's a huge multiplier. So if you are, if you are leaving in your database, 95% of the top quality applicants, because you're using a Boolean search instead of a more nuanced approach like ours, you know, you're, you're uncompetitive. Uh, I want to shift gears now, John, just to talk about your book a little bit. Um, first of all, congratulations on making the bestsellers list. Um, it's very, very well-deserved, having having read through much of the book myself. Um, and, and I will say that when I first saw the title, Deep Learning Illustrated, I thought the word illustrated was figurative. <laughs> you do <laughs> such a fantastic job of including relevant diagrams and pictures, um, and they really do a nice job of showing how things work under the hood. So unlike most books on machine learning, which traditionally have been more textbooks, they're harder to read, this one I felt was very comfortable. Like I was reading it on a train on vacation, for example, and it was just it was just fun just to go through it page by page. 
And you didn't skimp on historical background. You didn't skimp on details of various methods. Like you talk about the subtleties of initializing weights in neural networks. That was surprising for a book titled Deep Learning Illustrated. Um, so, so really, I think the book was a really fine balance between being enjoyable to read and also being practically useful. So how did you think about structuring this book initially? Did you have a lot of feedback from editors or, or colleagues? How did you ultimately write this book? I'm so glad to hear that you enjoyed the experience. And um, the, the way that you described it is exactly what I was hoping to do, where on the one side, I wanted the book to be easy to understand. And so um, Grant Belveld, uh, who co-authored it with me uh, and I, were from the very beginning thinking about how can we um, make concepts easier to understand. So as an example, um, actually an idea that, that Grant had that, that ended up turning out beautifully in the book was this idea of having variables colored consistently throughout the book, whether it's in an equation, in a figure, or in the body of the text. So by that's, that's an example of a way that we take something that on the one hand could be complicated, but on the other hand, if you take the time to illustrate it in a new way, and you, you spend the time you know, whiteboarding to figure out how can we take this complex idea and make it easier to understand, and then go through the admittedly very painful process of figuring out how to write that. <laughs> so the whole, the experience of writing this book was really torture. I mean, I'm so happy to have it done, and I'm signing up to do another one now. Um, oh, wow, very soon. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and... Uh, and that one will focus specifically on natural language processing, which is the, which is the topic. So that's that's covered a lot in chapter two and chapter eleven. We focus on natural language processing a lot, and that is obviously what we do at Untapped. It's our bread and butter. But it also happens to be from talking to people, it's the topic that um, the that by far the most people are interested in. So I, I do a lot of uh, lectures um, online or in person. And I, I ask at the end of those, you know, what would you like to learn about next? And it's crazy how the vast majority of people in any given room will say natural language processing, yes. Whereas for other topics like machine vision or reinforcement learning, there are people who are interested, but it's not like NLP. Anyway, I'm digressing. Uh, so yeah, so that, that the way you described it I'm, I'm, is, is exactly what we were hoping for. Um, yeah, to to take we we wanted to make sure that we didn't skimp on depth um, as practitioners ourselves, um, and as someone who uh, teaches this uh, content, um, I have my I have my own curriculum at the New York City Data Science Academy, um, which is a, a thirty hour course that runs a, a, for five Saturdays a couple of times a year, and it sounds really intense. Uh, I, I mean, I try to make it fun. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I hope it's, I, I hope it's, I think it's kind of the right pace. Cause you kind of, when you get, because, you know, if you're, you, you know, lecture for two and a half hours and then lunch and then two, lecture for two and a half hours kind of thing and break for tea. And then you get a week off to kind of digest it and consult the textbook and work on your own projects, your own deep learning projects, which is a big part of what we do in the courses. I, I really highly recommend that the way, and th this is advice for anyone, whether they're you know trying to learn deep learning or anything else. And for a lot of people working in software, this is obvious, is that if you want to become familiar with, with how to do something, 
try it, um, you know, play around with things. And so a big part of my course is, is guiding students along building their own deep learning project as, as the weeks go on. Um, I've digressed again. So the, the, so it's it through teaching that content, um, uh, I, 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 it was important to me to convey things at a, at, at a relatively low level, at a, at a theoretical level where I knew that people would be able to understand uh, what's happening deeply in these algorithms so that they can not just be using um, high-level abstraction tools like Keras, but actually really understand what's going on under the covers and be able to make sensible decisions and make be making state-of-the-art deep learning models themselves. Um, in order to be able to do that while also making it as you described, you know, relatively fun to understand, um, re relatively fun to read. That required us to be really thoughtful, uh, painfully thoughtful, about how we exposed all the information. And a huge part of what made that possible was working with Agley Bassens, the illustrator of our book. So even though she's the illustrator, she's actually a co-author of the book because, uh, you know, she because she was so instrumental in helping us figure out how to convey this challenging content visually. And it was absolutely a, a joy to work with her. Um, so uh, so that kind of, that answers most of your question. The final part of the question is, you know, how did we figure out what content to teach and, and, and how to teach it? And again, that was made possible by a number of things. So for three years now, I've been running a deep learning study group in New York, which Grant is a huge, uh, he's attended almost every single one of those. And he presents at several of them. He was presenting at the one that we hosted last night. Um, and so that deep learning study group gives us a, a sounding board. It's this group of people that have been, we all together have been studying the same content for three years now. And so we have uh, developed together a, a good understanding um, of the field and can bounce ideas off of each other and, and, and figure out what we should be studying next. You know, where's the field going? What paper should we be reading? What video should we be watching? What should we be discussing? And so that was hugely informative for figuring out what the content should be in the book and how to convey it. And then the second piece is then teaching it in more of a classroom setting. So um, I do uh, I do online trainings twice a month in O'Reilly Safari to hundreds of people, and that provides me with a lot of feedback on how I should be teaching this content. Teaching it at the New York City Data Science Academy in that comprehensive course is kind of another view um, on on how I should be conveying this content to people and getting feedback on that. And then I also, uh, I guess, lecture to electrical engineers at Columbia University, and that gives kind of a, yet another perspective. So through constantly practicing these things, you figure out, yeah, how to convey it effectively. It's just practice. Yeah. So after trying a bunch of things, you kind of know the most optimal path towards teaching a particular topic. It's great. Yeah. Anyway, thank you for listening to that long-winded answer. <laughs> no, no, no. That was great. Um, but I do want to ask because, you know, sometimes when people talk about writing a book on machine learning, to me, the biggest challenge is that the landscape is always changing, right? There are always these new topics that come out that become popular. I feel like the cycle of, of fads just goes much faster with machine learning and, and I guess deep learning now. So how did you think about that when you were writing the book? How did you think about writing something that would last say more than five years and still stay relevant? Well, interestingly, in machine learning in general and, in, and even in deep learning in particular, the fundamentals 
change very slowly. So the fundamental theory of artificial neurons, so if we're talking about self-driving cars today, Facebook recognition on Facebook, voice recognition with Siri, with any of those tools, the kinds of artificial neurons that are in those algorithms, the idea, the mathematics, have been around since the 1950s. And then the way that those artificial neurons are networked together to form a deep learning network and how we train it, almost all of the theory, all of the most important parts were figured out by the 80s. We refined things a little bit in the 90s and there were a couple of major uh, theoretical breakthroughs around 2010, 2011, 2012. But for the most part, um, the, it, it the theory doesn't change that much. People end up applying it to much larger data sets. They spin up more servers than ever before. And this is partly a function of compute becoming exponentially cheaper all the time, data storage becoming exponentially cheaper all the time. And so these tools that are fairly, uh, where the theory actually doesn't change that much, the the applications, the applications that, that seem to be changing rapidly around us are really mostly a function of um, having cheaper compute and cheaper data storage. So a lot of the stuff in the book when we sit down to create the second edition, most of the book will be the same. What we'll end up doing is expanding more. So in the intervening years, you know, two or three years from now as we sit down to write the second edition, it will be the case that those fundamentals will still be the same, but in machine vision, we'll have to add a number of sections onto the end of the machine vision chapter. We'll have to add a bunch of sections onto the end of the NLP chapter and so on, because specific applications will have grown out of these fundamentals that have stayed the same. Cool. So I've looked at your book. For anybody who hasn't, what would you describe as the primary audience? Who should go out and buy your book? Super. So there are two. So I... Uh, deliberately designed the book so that the first four chapters can be read by anyone who's interested in learning what deep learning is, what artificial intelligence is, and what's possible in AI today. So those first four chapters have no code, they have almost no math, they have a ton of fun illustrations, and they have a ton of um, kind of narratives around the people that came up with these ideas and why those ideas are important today and how they're impacting us today. So those first four chapters can really be read by anyone. And that's a big part of the book. That's at least the first 100 or 120 pages um, of the book. The In chapter five, we start to introduce Python code. And um, in chapter six, we start to introduce some relatively serious math. Um, but uh, so so then in that sense, the primary audience for the book for for digesting the entire book is somebody with a little bit of experience in object oriented programming, ideally Python, but not necessarily Python. Um, and if you're not familiar with that, um, I provide resources, you know, in chapter five, once we start with those code examples, I say, hey, I recommend you be able to do some object-oriented programming. If you don't feel up to scratch, here are some resources for getting the basics of Python and specifically getting the ba the basics for handling data. So, you know, pandas, numpy, pandas, numpy, scipy, matplotlib, these kinds of packages that are common in data science today. Um, 
And yeah, you don't necessarily need to have any prior experience with machine learning or statistics, um, although those things wouldn't hurt. But we make sure at any point that we're introducing some machine learning specific or statistics specific con uh, content, we take a little bit of time to say here at a high level is what you need to know. And then here are some resources for digging deeper if you'd like to on your own time. Yeah, I can attest to that. You've done a fantastic job of making the chapters accessible. Um, they flow together really well as well so that you don't feel like you're dropped off a cliff and you have to figure things out on your own at any given point in time. So I, I totally agree with your assessment just now. Thank you. Cool. So um, in the final few minutes, I, I want to just mention, it is very unusual to meet someone who is working as a chief data scientist at a company, simultaneously writing a textbook, simultaneously teaching um, courses on nights and weekends, as you say, and also doing research at Columbia. So how do you find time for all of these different roles? So there are at least three ways I can think of, three kind of ca uh, categories of ways that uh, enable me to uh, get all these things done. The first is that I have to cut corners on everything in ways that are uh, unsatisfying. So, you know, there's all kinds of content that I would have loved to have been able to include in the book, but, you know, there's just only so much time in the week. And so um, you have to cut corners on that. Um, the second piece is I have structured my life around uh, doing deep work. So there's a book by Cam Newport called Deep Work, and I you know, live my life kind of following those principles where, you know, I, if I can get four, six, I, in some cases, eight hours of uninterrupted work on a, on a specific task, the results can be pretty impressive over time. And so that book by Cam Newport, Deep Work, paired with another book by my friend James Clear called Atomic Habits, which is just generally about um, kind of building productive, happy habits into your life. Um, I can highly recommend either of those for anyone who wants to get a lot out of their day. And then the third piece is, of course, just having an incredible support network, both professionally and personally. So, um, so the team here at Untapped is absolutely incredible. So and involved in a lot of these projects with me. With me, So that Columbia Research Project, Grant, who I already mentioned, as well as Vince on our team, and I are all involved in that project. Grant, of course, and I were both involved in the book. Um, and then the fourth person on our science team here, Andrew, is also in, involved in, in picking up so much slack on, on things that you know I can't handle myself. So that ends up happening more and more and more with professional work as well, as it's uh, a lot, my day is increasingly spent um, with clients and pitching new business and maintaining relationships and then writing things on a whiteboard and being like, this is what they want. And I, this is kind of my vague idea about how to do it. And then the rest of the team gets stuck with actually making it happen and all the headaches that uh, accompany with that. So I'm deeply grateful for uh, the team doing that. Um, and it's not just our data science team here at Untapped, it's the broader company as well. So everyone in the company is hugely supportive of all of these various um, projects that we take on or I take on specifically. And um, it's great. I think it's, it, it is proving itself now that by allowing me some time in my work week to um, invest in writing the book and doing this teaching and doing public lectures and these podcasts, that it is good for business in the long run. Um, and so that is absolutely wonderful. Oh, and of course, yeah. And then personally too, I mean, there's, you know, the the people that I'm close to in my life 
uh, friends and family and, and loved ones, you know, they also bear the brunt of me being like, you know, I've got to just be working all day again today, you know, even on holidays and weekends. They're That's... okay with not seeing you for a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, I go home, uh, I live in New York, but I'm from Toronto. And when I go home for the holidays, oh, I'm from Toronto too. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we can talk about that a lot more after the podcast. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, when I go home, I'll go home for two weeks or so. And every day I do a little bit, you know, spend two or three hours getting some work done, getting some writing done. And that really adds up and everyone's supportive of that. So it's, it's wonderful to have that. Um, yeah. So there you go. So those are the, the three ways that you make all these things happen. Thank you so much, John, for coming by to Databytes. Um, for our listeners out there who are interested in learning more about deep learning, I highly recommend John's Deep Learning Illustrated. You can find it on Amazon or anywhere else um, for, for finding books online, I suppose. So yeah. definitely check that out. If you go to deepleaningillustrated.com, there is a 35% uh, off code there. So Ooh, check that's that out. a very nice discount. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Thanks for that. All right. Thank you so much, John. Uh, my pleasure, Susan. It's been great.